Chapter 21 of The Social War of 1900, or The Conspirators and Lovers. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Demick. The Social War of 1900, or The Conspirators and Lovers, by Simon Landis. Chapter 21. Victor's Vision in a Dream in His Dungeon. Dr. Victor Juno was left all night lying on the hard, damp, cemented floor of the dungeon, without removing even as much as the gag. But about eight o'clock in the morning, several rough men came to his presence, when they removed the shackles and left him without saying a word. He asked them what was the object of this malicious conduct, but not a syllable was answered, and the men left him to surmise what was in store for him. He now got upon his feet. However, it was as much as he could do to stand erect without tumbling to the ground, and managed to stagger to the place where the, the men seemed to come in and go out. But upon closely examining it, he found nothing but a small offset and a rough iron door without a single aperture in its construction. He next followed the wall around, examining every inch from the ground floor to as high as he could reach. But, alas, nothing was detected except a roughly plastered wall, and after a long search for a spot from which air or light might be received, he found himself back again in the doorway. Now he laid down on the floor, stretching his hands and feet in every direction, trying to measure his prison house, and also for the purpose of ascertaining if any furniture or opening could be discovered. But, oh horror, horror, nothing but one blank dark dungeon was surrounding this son of toil. He sat himself as comfortably as possible on the floor, inclining his back against the wall, and listened for what seemed to him nearly an hour, but all was silent as the tomb. He was getting thirsty and hungry, and he wondered if this was a plan to starve him to death, or what can be the object of this foul conspiracy to incarcerate him in this horrible dungeon. Presently he fell into his sleep, when he dreamed that he was traveling over the continent of Europe where he met General Washington Armington, who was in terrible distress about the loss of his daughter Lucinda. The latter at once accused him, Dr. Juno, of being the seducer of his lovely daughter, and said to him, Dr. Juno, prepare yourself to meet your God, for I am going to shoot you forthwith. My dear General, you greatly wrong me. I have always treated your daughter with profound respect. Moreover, you forget that I have jeopardized my miserable life to save hers and I would do so a thousand times over for the fair, virtuous damsel. Why, then, do you accuse me of ruining your child? Have you no more confidence in me than that? spoke Victor Juno to the general, to which the latter seemed to smile and walked away. Suddenly there appeared an angel before Dr. Juno, who had several beautiful emblems in his right hand, and the angel held up one of them and said, this represents a youth whose wisdom excels his vanity, and who, if he prove true to his intuitive gifts, will be compelled to go through a fiery furnace for a brief season. But if he continues to trust in an overruling, just, and infinite God, will have this crown set upon his head. And now the angel presented another emblem, which appeared to look like a rainbow, inside of which hosts of cherubims were embracing each other until the entire brotherhood of mankind seemed to be enchanted with the power and hallowed blessedness of the beneficent creator of all things. In the left hand the angel held a dark ring, which had unsightly leprous spots upon it, and which poured forth fiery vipers. 
the angel said, If you prove faithless and fearful, you will inherit this crown, which is prepared for all who flag and faint in the hour of persecution. The angel disappeared, and the prisoner woke up amazed to find himself thus. He continued a long time in the same position on the damp cemented floor, and meditated as follows. I have had a peculiar dream, a beautiful dream, but what is there in dreams? Great God, since I am deserted by man, I thank thee for having permitted an angel from yonder realms of the blessed to come unto me, and direct me what course I shall pursue to accomplish my work. I shall heed the admonition, and bear patiently all that my persecutors can heap upon me, knowing that I am in the right. I must also be convinced that God will not permit me to die for naught. And what can it matter to the naturalist, whether he is sacrificed in one way or another, only so that his beloved cause may prosper? The man philosophized in this manner for hours, forgetting thereby that he was in a dungeon and powerless. But he imagined that he was growing stronger, and of more moment hourly, until finally he changed his bodily position, when hunger and thirst seemed to overpower him. But presently he heard a noise. His prison gates were moving, and a keeper brought him a loaf of bread and a mug of water. Oh, how grateful to God and his persecutors was he for this little kindness! For, he thought, they don't mean to starve me, and I hope for a safe deliverance from this dungeon. And should I escape and see my beloved Lucinda again, I would be too happy. Yes, and I should preach to the people once more my beloved sentiments, and also inform them of my sufferings on their behalf. Truly, had I done as my persecutors desire all men to do, I would now be the successful pastor of some wealthy congregation, with plenty of wealth and more glory of men than any of the rest, because, with my knowledge of human nature, I could be the greatest hypocrite and saintliest Pharisee. But my zeal runs in an opposite direction, and I shall hold out faithfully to the end, and though my wounded soul bleeds to exhaustion." I have already suffered much for my audacity in presenting a purer and more Christ-like piety than the fashionable sectarian world upholds, but yet I have not endured what Jesus and his apostles had to undergo. This is a consolation that there is a hereafter, where we shall be rewarded according to the deeds, not the blind faith, done in the body. It must not be forgotten that Dr. Juno had comparatively few friends who cared enough for him and his doctrines to put themselves out of the way for him except Miss Lucinda Armington, who, however, was as firmly locked up in the asylum as he was himself, probably because they were so near to each other, yet unaware of the fact, caused them to be more buoyant than they would have been had they been far apart. Both of them felt certain that the other was being persecuted at the selfsame hour, because the bloody conspirators knew all about their love for each other, hence this persecution. Victor Juno loved her dearly, in fact, he worshipped the ground she walked on. But, notwithstanding all this, he was more deeply concerned about his cause of reform. He considered the improvement of the human race as preeminently of more moment than the happiness of the few, and as his religion convinced his mind that God was just, if man was unjust, he deemed it of little importance whether he suffered martyrdom or not. He was receiving no attention in his dungeon, beside a loaf of bread and a mug of water daily, which was no deprivation to a vegetarian like himself, although the bloody conspirators thought that he would soon sink and starve to death on such a regimen. But instead of that, he gained solid flesh, and when Jemmy had learned that he was a prisoner there, 
he increased the quantity and improved the quality of his food. Although Dr. Juno gained in flesh, he became more tender and often felt prostrated, probably more on account of the vitiated atmosphere which he was bound to inhale than from anything else. One day, after he had been feeling particularly prostrated, Jemmy made this discovery, that Dr. Juno was a prisoner within that most terrible dungeon, and whilst Jemmy was cogitating what he had better do to save the benefactor, he overheard two jealous servants of the asylum say to one another that they suspected Jemmy of being engaged in a plot to ruin their reputation with the managers, and that they would set a trap for him and turn the tables on him if they could. They watched their opportunity to get a chance to speak to Deacon Rob Stew, who was their particular friend, as he was instrumental in getting them into the institution, because they were Protestant saints. And when they saw the deacon, one of them said to him, Brother Stew, George and myself have discovered a deep plot, which is now being worked up by several of the Catholic help, which will greatly injure the asylum if it succeeds. What is it, William? asked the deacon. You will not expose us if we tell you, for the Irish Catholics are wicked enough to murder us should they find out what we told on them, said George. Never fear your deacon, responded the viper, feeling terribly nervous, because the guilty conscience needs no accuser. Well, it is this. Jemmy, the Irish overseer, is trying to have all Protestant help removed from the various wards of the asylum, and have Catholics installed in our stead. He thinks that there are now some secret matters going on in this institution that could not occur were they to occupy the entire control of the prisoners, said William. Great God, meditated the deacon. Can Jemmy know that Victor Juno and Miss Lucinda Armington are confined within these walls? I must contrive a plan to have him forthwith arrested and removed from the asylum, and also deprive him of his liberty, for I am ruined. In fact, the whole brotherhood would be disgraced. Never mind, Jemmy. What cannot I do to prevent my plans from failing, and your arrest and speedy conviction is a fixed fact? It will be remembered that Jemmy was arrested by the deacon himself as he was leaving the asylum to visit his country friends. But, as the inauspicious moment would have it, Pat O'Connor and Judy McCree, excited and awfully indignant, met the deacon and Jemmy just as the latter twain were in angry consultation, when Pat blustered forth, "'Deacon, your honour, begora, I'll have satisfaction or I'll expose the whole thing!' End of chapter 21 Recording by William Demick